Misra, like Huckleberry. Huckleberry. Okay, perfect. All right, let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. I've been a space and astronomy news journalist for over 20 years. We report all the news on Universe Today, but I like to bring you behind the scenes so you can see the kinds of interviews that we do with the experts in the field. And today, I'm joined by Dr. Jacob Huck Misra from actually, what is the place? Where Where are you from? I'm at the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. That's right. Yeah. And so who are you? What do you do? I'm a uh, research scientist. I'm an astrobiologist. I'm interested in finding, you know, life on other planets. Um, but for my day job, you know, I, I use computer climate models, the kind that you might use for weather prediction or climate prediction on Earth. And we use these to uh, study the habitable habitability of other planets. So that could be Earth through time. That could be, you know, planets like Mars or Venus, and that could be exoplanets around other stars. Is you know, is that related? Because I remember, like, about a year ago, maybe there was like a really interesting set of papers that came out where they were like simulating weather conditions on Earth, but also Venus in the past, as well as maybe some some fairly familiar exoplanets like Proxima Centauri B and and so on. That, that kind of work. That's right. Exactly like that. I mean, yeah. we, we think the physics of atmospheres should be, you know, operate on planets generally. And so, you know, uh, understanding climate on Earth helps us understand the climate on other planets. And then looking at some of these weird planets helps us maybe understand the physics of, of Earth's climate a little better. So when you think about the planets that we've discovered so far, do you think that we're getting a sense of how habitable these might be? We are starting to. I think what we're getting a sense of is there's definitely uh, a lot of planets, probably at least one per star, if not more, um, and ha rocky planets like Earth in this habitable zone where you could expect liquid water to occur. They, that seems to probably be really common. Um, that said, we're just getting to that threshold. You know, it's easier to see bigger planets than smaller planets. So the first generation of planets that were discovered were large Jupiter-like planets. And um, so we're we're kind of getting closer to that Earth-sized planet. And there's, there's some planets that I think are, you know, you can claim are relatively comparable to an Earth size. But, you know, that sweet spot of an Earth-like planet around a, a sun-like star in the habitable zone, yeah. you know, I think the best targets are still to come. We're still just getting to the point of, of you know, demonstrating that planets are everywhere and that we can find them. I mean, we think about like the planets in the Trappist one system, they're probably fair. You know, we know they're very close to their red dwarf star, they are probably receiving radiation, larger flares than the kinds of things that the sun can put out, they're probably tidally locked to their star. What implications do you think that would have on the habitability of a planet? Yeah, those are great questions. That's one of the things that keeps me funded. It's great. <laughs> um, but yeah, what you said is, is exactly right. We expect, you know, these planets to probably be, you know, tidally locked. So one side of the planet is in perpetual daylight. One side is perpetual night. There's this zone of perpetual twilight on the edge called the Terminator region, which is kind of fun to think about. Um, maybe that's where life would exist. You know, it, it kind of depends too. Um, you know, which there's, you know, Trappist, uh, you know, D, E and F, the planets are all you know, na named by the letters, you know, very unoriginal, yeah. unimaginative. But, um, uh, you know, the, the planet E might be the best one to think about for maybe being Earth-like. That doesn't mean it's Earth-like, but at least in terms of being that right distance where we could try to think about what sort of habitable atmosphere it might be. But, you know, the other planets, planet D, which is in a little closer, it might not be like Venus. There, there could be ways that it might be more habitable. Mm. Planet F might be an ice ball, but maybe not. I mean, we, we don't have the data yet to say if they have atmospheres and what they are. Um, so right now you, you have, you know, the masses of the planets and the orbital distance, and you know how much starlight is falling on them. Um, so, so you can kind of play some guessing games using your climate models to say, okay, what are some plausible atmospheres given what we know about it? And then that can be useful because you're at least preparing for future observations. And if something could never be observed on that planet, you know not to look for it. Um, but really the exciting moment will come when you get some spectra, like you get some, you know, observe the atmospheres of these planets to figure out what molecules are in there what's what's its atmosphere made of and then that'll help give us some real data for these models i mean i think those observations from james webb 
are gonna are the ones that I'm most looking forward to. Like, of course, I'm looking forward to all the cosmology stuff, but to see that spectra from James Webb of the atmospheres of the Trappist One planets, if it's able to produce that, is going to be really exciting. Oh, I'm excited about that for sure. Yeah, yeah. Now you came across sort of my desk because you were the lead author on a paper discussing, I, I guess, what existing telescopes and missions have have the potential to find techno signatures out there in the Milky Way. So can you talk about the about the process? Because it wasn't just a paper, right? it was a conference. And this is the end result of a of a discussion. That's right. It was uh, about two years ago. It was at the beginning of COVID. Um, and, uh, you know, we, me and my colleagues had talked about doing a, a workshop about techno signatures to try to, like, you know, get people in, in a room together and, and talk about, you know, where to go, where, how can we make some serious progress on, on you know, finding directions for techno signature science. And, uh, you know, then the pandemic happened and we decided, like, well, let's just move forward with this anyway. People are still excited, at least at that time, you know, two years ago in August, we're excited about online events. And it was a nice small event, which worked out. It was about 50 people. Uh, you know, we met on Zoom for a week, um, you know, I think about four hours a day for a week. Um, and the first three days were presentations by just some of the, you know, big names and, and then, you know, students studying techno signatures. Um, and then the last couple of days we spent having you know discussions and and being in breakout groups to to try to figure out you know th this paper that you mentioned was talking about current and future missions things that we've built or are, are building or are designing and what the potential would be for uh, for, for advancing techno signature science. One of the other papers was you know kind of like our wish list like okay if we weren't really constrained by oh, budgets. Or, or any, you know, I mean, you have to be constrained by what's realistic and what we can do. But so, yeah, if the funding were not an objection, what are the kinds of things we would really want to do? And so that was the second paper that came out of out of this workshop. All right. Well, let's tackle these one at a time then, because both are are really interesting to me. So, so what? How did you classify the kinds of techno signatures that you're going to be searching for, and then compare those to the capabilities of the missions and telescopes that exist right now? Right. Well, we focused on, on technosignatures in exoplanetary systems. And so what that rules out is technosignatures in the solar system. I'm not saying there are no technosignatures in the solar system. In fact, I'm very interested in that. That would just be a separate paper, yep. uh, mainly because there's so many solar system missions. The way that you would talk about that is just different. So, yep. so we just focus on, on exoplanetary systems. And in our paper, we focus on non-radio. Again, not because I don't think radio is important because radio has been studied a lot. And so our, our you know, and, and NASA was interested in funding um, uh, exploration of other aspects of technosignature science beyond radio. Um, so we mentioned radio for sure, you know, maybe there's, this is the classic approach to, to, to SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. You, you point a radio telescope at a system, maybe there's, you know, leakage, their, their TV transmitters and radar, you pick up on that, or maybe there's a beacon and they're trying to communicate with us like that. So, so that's fine. Um, but we, we actually focus more on what would you see in an exoplanet system, either things in the atmosphere or um, things around the planet, or maybe something that we're not even doing, you know, we're putting pollutants in our atmosphere now. So you can think about searching for that. We're putting satellites around uh, our planet now. Um, so you could imagine having a lot more satellites and that being detectable. Um, but you could think about other future extrapolations like building building megastructures, something like a Dyson sphere or, or something else that we can conceive of doing, but we're not going to do anytime soon. Um, but we could at least think about what detectable signatures, um, things like that, like megastructures, mega, you know, astro engineering might look like. So you know, you gave a, a, a few examples, but I know that that people in this field have been brainstorming for, for quite a while. And there's a lot of really clever ideas for the kinds of signals that a advanced civilization could either intentionally or unintentionally give out. You gave some examples, but I would love to hear sort of a more deeper list of some of the ideas that that you think are 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 pretty clever. Absolutely. Yeah, well, so I'll start with pollution. And so when you talk about, um, you know, pollution, the idea is, is there anything in a planet's atmosphere that, that you know, shouldn't be there, is, is, you know, to put it, put it you know, in, in a simple way. 
Um, we do this with biosignatures too. If we want to look for life on a planet, not necessarily technology, but life, you look for gases in the atmosphere that probably wouldn't be there if, if life weren't there. And one of the ideas is oxygen and methane are both produced by life and they destroy each other. So the fact that we have them both on Earth uh, is, is due to life. Um, so uh, chlorofluorocarbons are one example of a gas mm. in our atmosphere. Um, these these are have been banned by the Montreal Protocol um, and been replaced with with safer alternatives because they were um, a, a, they helped deplete ozone and in the Antarctic uh, ozone hole was a big uh, political issue and the Montreal Protocol actually was one of the few you know examples of an environmental success through through, uh, through policy by banning this dangerous chemical. Um, but they have long lifetimes. So even some of the, the potent greenhouse gas CFCs that were emitted back you know, in the 80s and such, they're still lingering in our atmosphere. Right. So right. if you were to point a telescope at an exoplanet, or if aliens were to point a telescope at us and observe um, our, our, our planet's atmosphere uh, in the infrared part of the spectrum, um, you might notice some extra absorption from these CFCs. There's no known biological process to make these chlorofluorocarbons. Uh, as far as we know, it's an industrial gas. And there's a whole class of these. There's there's many different, you know, chlorofluorocarbons, halocarbon, halofluorocarbons, um, other compounds. They all have, you know, various absorption in different parts of the infrared spectrum. And they're, they're industrially pro produced molecules. So if we were to observe something like that, it would be really good evidence of something like extraterrestrial industry. And and I've heard we, we covered this a, a few months ago, that Webb is theoretically capable of detecting these kinds of signals in relatively nearby exoplanets. So it sounds like science fiction, but actually Webb could take a crack at it. In some best case scenarios, that's right. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Could, you could potentially use the James Webb Space Telescope for uh, you know, for TRAPPIST-1E or some, some nearby systems like that, um, especially if there was elevated CFCs more than we had on Earth. And then you could think about why would they do that? But, you know, maybe they're terraforming the yeah. planet or maybe they don't care, they're robots or something like that. And, but <laughs> but it's, it's at least an interesting example to show that it's detectable, yeah. you know. So um, I'm not holding my breath to find 100 times the amount of CFCs on TRAPPIST-1E. Right. Um, but but yeah, we could do the search and, and in some ways looking for you, you can do the search for free. If you're looking at the, the planet, you want to know what's in its atmosphere. You don't have to do a special search for CFCs. You, you're just doing a search to, to, you know, for its spectra to figure out what's in the planet's atmosphere. And so um, but it's we're a duration thing, right? Like you you'll want to be scanning for a certain amount of time. So you've got to be able to get time on the telescope. That's right. That's right. And in some cases, looking for a technosignature like CFCs would require less time than a biosignature like oxygen in some right. cases. So, you know, that, or that's like kind phosphine, of if somebody's crazy enough to go exactly. searching for that. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that's so that's that's a good one. And I guess you can imagine all the industrial processes that we've gone through and maybe predict ones that might happen in the future. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, one, another example is combustion. Um, which, which we're really good at right now. Uh, combustion produces, it produces CO2, of course, um, which is what we're mainly concerned about. But through a byproduct of combustion is, is NO2, nitrogen dioxide. And this is just because our atmosphere is full of nitrogen. And so during this high temperature combustion reaction, um, you get some oxygen combining with, with nitrogen. And so um, I think it's about half of the nitrogen dioxide on Earth uh, is is anthropogenic. It's associated mm. with our cars, with our farm vehicles, with other uses of fossil fuel to provide energy for us. Now, the supply of fossil fuels is is finite. This is a problem we're dealing dealing with now. Uh, even if we have a few hundred or even a thousand years longer, that's really short on astronomical timescales. So it's worth asking whether we would expect to see evidence of extraterrestrial combustion, because it's not clear if you could really sustain combustion sort of for those long geologic time periods. But it's still worth thinking about. Yeah. Um, maybe you can. Maybe you get lucky and you find civilization right you know, when it's doing that. Maybe, you know, the 
have other ways of sustaining low levels of combustion. So, so that's a technosignature that also kind of, you know, there's some nitrogen dioxide that could be a biosignature. So it's not quite as right. clear cut as maybe finding chlorofluorocarbons. But, but it's but almost it's, like you're going to be looking for collections of molecules. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. that actually is, it feeds into my, my next example, which is agriculture. Um, we just published a paper recently about um, on earth, um, agriculture mm -hmm. is a technology because, you know, planting things in the ground is not technology. I consider that biology, but what right. technology, what technology about it is, is the management of the nitrogen cycle. So what you're doing with, with agriculture is you're actually at first you're taking manure uh, from from animals and you're concentrating it and using it to intentionally enrich the soil, which you're really enhancing the planet's nitrogen cycle, even if ancient people didn't know they were doing this. Right. Um, later on, you start crop rotation. And um, what you're doing is you're, 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 you're planting nitrogen fixers in alternate years and letting crops go, you know, fields go fallow in alternate years to replenish the nitrogen kind of naturally. But the big invention was, um, you know, around uh, World War II, when the Haber-Bosch process was World War One. Haber-Bosch right. process was discovered, um, which allowed you, allowed the synthesis of ammonia from nitrogen gas and hydrogen gas. And so this is an industrial process. Uh, it occurs over a metal catalyst, um, but. It, it, uh, I mean, it, it allowed, you know, sort of the tide to turn in the war to some extent because you could provide enough. I mean, it seems weird ammonia, but ammonia is a key ingredient for, uh, for fertilizer. Right. And people who, you know, live in, in farmlands, you know, see big bags of this, this stuff, you know, ammonium nitrate and other, other products. But um, uh, so you can enrich your fields with ammonia through this industrial process in, in, in ammonia and nitrates. And um, that provides, provides a, a source of fertilizer for your crops. Now, this connects to technosignatures because when you apply fertilizer to field, it's, it's a pretty inefficient process. You kind of have to saturate the whole field with your fertilizer and you get really inefficient uptake uh, by the roots for like a small amount of that. So a lot of this, the nitrogen, the, the, the ammonia and um, N2O, nitrous oxide, are two products that then are emitted from farmlands in large quantities. Uh, and reach the atmosphere. And we can see this in satellite imagery for the earth. We can, huh. we can measure uh, uh, ammonia and we can measure nitrous oxide over areas that generally correspond to high, pro uh, high areas of agricultural productivity. So you could imagine a planet that has you know, as much or even more agriculture than earth um, as an exoplanet. And right. if you were to see that, you would have to have the conditions necessary for plants already. So you'd have to have oxygen, and water and CO2. But on top of that, if you saw a lot of a lot of uh, ammonia and a lot of nitrous oxide, that would be a really good technosignature for agriculture. Right. And that's something you could do for a really long time. One of the empire's farm planets. That's right. Maybe yeah. and exactly. Maybe right. it's not a planet where there's lots of people living. Maybe you're it's a service world and you're you're using yeah. it just for farming and shipping the food right. off world. But even so, with the chlorofluorocarbons, say we only had those present in our atmosphere for say fifty years and then they're gonna start decreasing, while the presence of agriculture that gives you a ten thousand year time scale to some extent. Obviously more obvious. Maybe longer. Maybe, yeah, longer. maybe even yeah. longer. If if you're not growing, you know, the, our problems now are, are increasing population and increasing uh, increasing energy consumption. But if you solve those problems and you stabilize your growth, there's no reason you couldn't farm, even using the Haber Bosch process, there's no reason you couldn't farm indefinitely, you know, until right. the sun expands. Right. So you've got a stable civilization that is farming to a certain extent and it's just and it, it's almost like it feels like it's kind of inevitable, like either they're going to wipe themselves out or they'll figure out how to live in a certain level of stability for long periods of time. And exactly. And if they're out there, then they're out there. That's really interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What what else, what other some other cool ideas that you that your team thought of? Well, uh, Thomas Beattie is an astronomer who has this really great idea about looking for city lights. And, you know, there's been some other people who've, who've suggested this, but he did some calculations to show that um, the, the Louvoir mission design, which is now represented in this, this large ultraviolet optical telescope that's been recommended by the Astro 2020 Decadal Survey. Um, so a mission like that, which is something we're considering doing, and it hopefully will, 
could could identify city lights, specifically um, sodium lamps. You see these big orange lamps in cities, right. and it puts out a really unique spectral signature. If you were looking at it, it would stand out um, quite drastically above other sources of light. Even if if you know you have some sunlight contamination or other things, it would be reasonably easy to pick out with you know with some of these missions. Now, a lot of the ideas that have been suggested are things that humanity has gone through. And that makes sense because we have some experience. We say, like, you know, we make farms. What if somebody else was making farms? Are there ideas about things that maybe we haven't done or can't do or maybe won't do for dozens, thousands of years? Absolutely. You know, the idea of megastructures is a whole class of, of techno signatures that's you know, also really popular in science fiction. And so this is the idea, you know, could you build large structures in space that maybe have sizes comparable to moons or planets? Um, and, and, you know, the, the really classic one is a Dyson sphere or a Dyson swarm. The idea is, you know, you could put um, a, a whole series of small free floating spacecraft all around the sun, you know, say at Earth's orbit or whatever orbit or orbital distance you wanted to just have a big, a big sphere all around the sun. And you're essentially maximizing the energy uh, you could collect from the sun. Uh, Dyson envisioned this as a way to increase, um, you know, habitable living space too. So if population keeps growing, of course, you can have, you know, little apartment buildings that are floating around in orbit that you can live on. Um, and then there's lots of designs for, for things like that, that you could do um, to essentially harness the full energy output of the sun. So this, this, is a, this is a thing you can think about in terms of how far can a civilization grow. Right. Um, Earth is just, you know, orbits the sun. We get a little fraction of the sunlight falling on our planet compared to how much energy the sun is putting out. But if you, if you cover the whole sun in all directions, then you're taking advantage of the most amount of energy you could get from our star. Now, now, you know, and, and I, I'll put a link to the actual paper because there are more than a dozen ideas in there. Um, nuclear war, um, you know, all kinds of things. But, but what I guess what capabilities do we have today, which are well equipped to be able to search for these techno signatures? Well, I think we're we're just getting to the point where we're going to be able to look for some of the, the, the more interesting ones. I mean, the James Webb Space Telescope will be able to do some. Um, it's not going to be able to do a comprehensive job of looking for technosignatures or even biosignatures, for that matter, around a lot of planets. It's going to get us a few, which is going to be really exciting because we haven't had any data before. Um, you know, there's some ground-based... Uh, facilities that are, are showing promise in their ability to to resolve spectra of exoplanets. Um, we're not really able to do that yet with Earth-sized planets, um, but but we'll, we'll get there. We'll eventually be yeah. able to with some of these these larger uh, you know, larger diameter ground-based telescopes. Um, trying to think of what. You know, there, there's there's probably a lot of work that can still be done in archival data. Like, you know, we have missions like the Kepler mission, which is kind of, you know, ha had its run and then had a, a second leg. Um, there were some exciting discoveries from, you know, potential techno signatures like, like Voyage and Star, which, you know, people still talk about what is this exactly? Are there other yeah. events like this? Is this, you know, a decaying comet swarm or something like that? Probably not a megastructure, but that was exciting. And it was the kind of anomaly that, that we hope to find. And, and we want to find anomalous things like that in the search for techno signatures. So um, there's still probably work to be done to look at existing data sets from things like the Kepler Space Telescope um, to, to, to look for other anomalies. Um, the, the test mission is essentially doing something similar to what Kepler did, but for nearby uh, star systems. So uh, I haven't seen anything anomalous yet come out from tests, but there's a potential that you could detect something, you know, weird that's transiting um, from, from the test mission. Right. Like, like, for example, like TESS is designed to watch for that, that dip as a planet is passing in front of the star. But what if the dip had a weird shape, like it was a triangle, this was the object that was moving in front of the star, it would actually give a fairly detectable signal that's different from a planet. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you had some artificial object orbiting or you, you had a star shade or yeah, any 
any number of things you could imagine. Um, you, you could potentially see something like that with with tests. That's really interesting. So now you mentioned as we sort of got into the interview that that half of your time or you know some of the time was spent thinking about what uh, is currently possible, and then you said that you then set your imaginations loose to figure out what would be ideal. So what would be some perfect techno signature hunting missions that you could envision? Well, one of the things that we're missing now, even with some of the missions that are being planned, is uh, to be able to look at exoplanets in the infrared. And you know, I mentioned that that would be important for something like chlorofluorocarbons. Now, the James Webb Space Telescope can do this a little bit for some you know, nearby star systems, right. um, mostly M-dwarfs. What we really need to be able to do is to do this for a wider range of stars, including stars like our sun. Um, and uh, you know, to, to be able to, to look across the full spectrum to, to get sort of a statistically meaningful sense of what planets have what types of spectral signatures. So a lot of these industrial compounds, a lot of these industrial technosignatures are gonna have an infrared, mid-infrared um, uh, absorption sig signature. The only mission that's really kind of thinking about doing that right now is the large inter interferometer for exoplanets, the LIFE mission. And it's kind of under study by ESA right now, the European Space Agency. It's not clear if that's going to be selected or not. I haven't even, um, you, I haven't even heard of this mission, which is weird because I've heard of them all. So hold on. The, this... Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just a mission under study. I mean, this is good that we're promoting it because that's partly what they need is I think yeah. you know, move on to the next level. Uh, you know, they, they need support from the community. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's just a, a it's a mission being designed for ESA's next selection of, of flagship missions. And, and the, life, um, just, the life interferometry. The large interferometer oh. for exoplanets. OK, it's the acronym life life. But okay. see, if you Google life, it's really hard to find. Yeah, no, no, no. But I've, I'm sort of envisioning what it would be. Would it be a ground based or a space based interferometer? That would be a space based. Interferometer. Wow. So like, sort yeah. of like the terrestrial planet finder, but, but not canceled. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, you know, when, when I was in grad school or when I was applying to grad school, I was promised the terrestrial planet finder was yeah. going to launch in 2017. And there was going to be two of them. There was the, the interferometer and also coronagraph. Um, but then ESA at the same time was planning the Darwin mission. Yep. So in some ways, this life mission is the successor of the Darwin mission. That's really interesting. Years. It is interesting. I mean, this is a total rabbit hole, but that ESA is is really taking up a lot of the interesting exoplanet hunting missions. You've got the Cheops mission. You've got Ariel, which is coming in 29. Uh, they've got a lot of really – Darwin, as Plato. you mentioned. Yeah. Plato. Yeah, they've got a lot of really interesting missions for this kind of work. They've really taken on the mantle. And not to mention what Gaia can do just in terms of, of hunting planets. It, it's There seems like a very focused effort in uncovering planets coming out of, of ESA. It's, it's great to see it. Um, Absolutely. So – but like, I mean – you're looking at some of the, this still sounds like existing missions. So let's imagine, you know, I mean, I guess the problem is like, if you made a techno signature hunting spacecraft, it would also be great for all kinds of things. Like it would be a gigantic telescope with a star shade or whatever. And the regular exoplanet astronomers would love to use that too. Are there any kinds of missions? I mean, I'm thinking about things like surveys for for Dyson swarms or surveys for type three civilizations are there any kinds of missions that that would give you a very unambiguous signal but maybe wouldn't fall under the purview of an existing mission well you could certainly do a better job at that so for for what you're saying like looking for you know these like these kardashev type two or type three civilizations that have you know settled many many star systems um yeah you could certainly do a better job at that um, and then this would again be looking at infrared, looking for, for waste heat, um, yeah. but it'd be similar to like the WISE mission or something like that, or, or Spitzer, like a follow-up. But again, that would have, you know, really useful general <laughs> astrophysics properties right. again. Find so all I the round dwarfs and rogue planets and yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that the specific ones that are really technosignature unique would be within the solar system. And there would still be right. other science that you could do. 
But I think if you were to say we want to look at Lagrange points to see if any artifacts have collected there, or we want to look at the surface of the moon to see. So when my colleague Danger, Daniel Egerhausen is doing this, actually, he's looking at high resolution images captured by the Lunar Reconnaissance Obser Observer, the moon, um, and using untrained machine lear learning algorithms to look for anomalies to see hmm. if you can find any technology on the moon. Now, we know there's technology on the moon. There's the Apollo landing sites. The Russians right. have crashed into it a few times and landed there. Um, so I don't think he's, he's finished yet, but that's at least there's some ground truthing you can do to make sure you oh, can find that. Interesting. So in theory, you would do this machine learning algorithm would just stare at all the LRO data, and hopefully it will find the Apollo landers and go, these are weird. Um, we don't right. have a natural explanation for what these things are. But then also there's this weird alien robot von neumann probe factory over here on the you know on the far side of the moon for example that would exactly be, yeah yeah that's really interesting so let's let's talk about this some more then um you know what are some other places we could look inside the solar system for some kind of evidence because like uh you know in in my opinion this idea of von neumann probes where you know where are all the aliens you know the classic fermi paradox you would think that there would be some evidence of some extraterrestrial civilization having come through the solar system used us as a supply depot and then moved on as they they continue their exploration of the of the milky way where would be the best places to look for this right well that's the fermi paradox yeah, um yeah i mean so so there's uh the services of planets right there's uh, I mean, the moon and Mars are nice places to look because uh, the surfaces aren't resurfaced very often. And so if something were to land there or to crash there, it'd be easier to see. Something landed on Earth, it might be a lot harder to see. There's oceans it could fall in. Um, maybe if you're lucky, it falls on like a part of Antarctica where it doesn't snow very often and you can find it. Otherwise, we have weathering on Earth. There's lots of processes that destroy and hide things. Um, the gas giants are difficult because they don't really have a surface. And so something flies into it, it probably gets destroyed. But maybe they're moons, you know, so anything with a solid surface. Um, but, uh, you know, the asteroid belt, if, if you're talking about, you know, von Neumann, von Neumann probes or, or, you know, any kind of, you know, alien ship passing by because they need resources, like, yeah, look, look for evidence of asteroid mining. Maybe they came through, yeah. and, you know, picked up some some water and some iridium and moved on. Yeah. And it is interesting because it could have happened at any point in the solar system's four and a half billion years. An asteroid that was heavily mined out would be obvious and would be largely unchanged for, for billions of years. So it would be a very unambiguous signal that somebody came by and maybe That's there would right. even be leftover parts of their hardware. Unless they took the whole asteroid, then we never know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Turned it into a spacecraft and then and then and then flew off with it. Um, and you mentioned that you didn't talk about SETI as part of this this paper, but how do you feel that that SETI fits into this this larger work as well? It's all it's all part of it. You know, te techno signatures is just any way of, of looking for life. And so I like I still will say SETI. I like talking about techno signatures because it focuses on detecting evidence of technology you don't have to talk about what is intelligence that that's the kind of a rabbit hole right to get into and and you of course there's evidence there's intelligence on earth that might not give off right uh, you know astronomically detectable signals and so just focusing technology but but it's the same thing fundamentally and um there's a lot of great work going on in radio right now breakthrough listen is really you know kind of one of the the leaders in this right now with, I think they're a little over halfway through a 10-year project to do a whole sky survey. Now, they're still not doing what you really should do, which would be expensive, which would be to look at all directions of the sky at all times, at all frequencies. <laughs> right. They're looking at you know a lot of stars for a few seconds. But what if you look at a star for a few seconds and then they transmit a couple minutes after you were looking at them? Like you, you don't know. They're they're testing a hypothesis that there's you know, an all like a beacon that's always on around some of these stars. And it's a fine experiment to do. But I mean, I think they would agree that what you'd really want to do to really test the SETI hypothesis, you have to steer everywhere all the time, all frequencies, probably for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
how but again that would have useful uh applications for other parts of, <laughs> right. of uh of astrophysics course. that that's and, how uh, you yeah. sell your astro seismology server survey is that you are you know you're staring at all of the stars all the time and so i think you know what, what you're getting at we can keep talking about all the, the, the details of it but you know in general there's not many if very, very few if any missions that would do just techno signature science and nothing else but i think what what you could do is right now you have missions that are for general astrophysics and we got lucky with this astro decadal where it's, it's for biosignatures too which is really exciting um you don't really have any designs being optimized for techno signatures at all and what I, th I think is great now is that these people are starting to consider like other scientists starting to take techno signature science more seriously i would love to see in these in this next generation of missions for techno signatures to be explicitly called out as one of the science objectives in the mission, even if it doesn't cost them anything else. That would be a huge step. So yeah. a mission that does not exist is the kind that adds money behind techno signatures, even if it's not 100% for techno signatures, but where right. techno signature science is actually a driver of the design instead of just something you get for free. And when you sense. say and when you say money and and this is sort of leading to the next set of com you know questions that I had for you it's like when you look at say the Parker Solar Probe and they list their priorities to understand the solar atmosphere and and understand the interactions of the, and the solar wind and so on and so forth they have a list of priorities. And I guess that means that if you're going to try to answer one of those questions you can get funding for your research and be able to get access to the instrument and, and etc. And in many cases, if you come to say, I want to use James Webb to scan this star system, because I think there might be a Dyson swarm there, they'll look at the list of priorities and go, we don't see that here. So do you think that there is this this shift shifting towards uh, an acceptance and an interest in in searching for I mean, even just like even astrobiology has has finally been allowed to show up at the at the table. Do you think we're at the point now where where there can be this as set as a priority? Oh yeah, I think absolutely. I think what you said could be reasonable. I think if if somebody were to have a compelling uh, obser observing proposal for the James Webb Space Telescope to look for a Dyson sphere, you, you would probably have some astronomers on the review committee that would give it a funny look. But you, you might get some that would, would say, like, well, let's just take this seriously as scientists and see if they make a good case or not. Right. So, you know, that's part of what we're trying to do is just get, you know, scientists to get over the giggle factor and just look at it for what it is. Um, not all signature ideas are good, but, but, you know, just evaluate it like you would any other idea in science. So I think we're, we're, we're moving toward that, where if the telescope can do it and it doesn't you know, it, it's not, um, they don't have to build anything extra into the telescope to look for technical signatures. Then essentially it's, it's, it's free science for them. Um, right. But, but if you're like, but like a future mission that, you know, what would be really great. And this is, you know, wishful thinking like that second paper I mentioned to have missions where techno signature science was really driving the design and yes. you're still doing other things. But you're, you're saying like, well, we, we really want to see CFC. So we're going to make this telescope measure way out into the infrared. And the science justification is because we want to see industrial molecules. And there's other things we can do with it. Right now, it's backwards. It's the other way. It's like if, if you're lucky, you can fit techno signatures into what they're already doing. Um, but uh, it, what about yeah. like a like a specific target? Um uh, A.B. Scott and Flowers mentioning in the chat, like if I was in charge of James Webb, the first thing I'd image would be Proxima Centauri. Um, would there be a mission, like is there a specific target that you think might be interesting enough, maybe because it's close, that it's worth analyzing as long as you can, as opposed to a more general survey or something that can be turned at lots of different targets? Oh, yeah, I think that's probably what will happen with JWST. I think, you know, TRAPPIST-1E will certainly be surveyed. Um, I, I don't know about, about Proxima, what, what its capabilities are, are for that, because there's, but right. 
Um, James, the James Webb Space Telescope is not going to get a broad survey of lots of exoplanets in terms of like detailed spectra. We'll probably get detailed spectra of, you know, one or two planets. But like, you um, know, the, you, you know, of the, the solar gravitational lens idea where you fly a mission out to 500 plus astronomical units and you use the sun, the gravity of the sun as a, as a lens and you, the trick with this is that you have to you have this tiny little cylinder that you have to fly your spacecraft down, and you can only observe one planet. And that's it. But you get to see the planet at megapixel resolution, which would be great to see an exoplanet at megapixel resolution. Do you think we're at the point where we have enough interest? Do, like, do we have interesting places that would be worth spending a lot of time? Studying. Not yet. No, Not the yet. most interesting planets are still to come. Yeah, what yeah. we have now is exciting because we know that there's planets everywhere and we don't have any reason to doubt our ability to find a habitable Earth planet. There's planets everywhere. We just have to keep looking. But, um, you know, there's, it's, you know we've, we've found the planets that are easier to find, which is not necessarily the ones that are the most interesting for searching for life and technology. So, yeah, if we were to build something like that, I would say we've got to wait. We don't have the best target yet. And and like just across, but across the spectrum, then you mentioned Tabby Star. I know SETI researchers like the Wow signal. There's a few others that are that are interesting. Obviously, you can't go back in time and study the Wow signal better. People have tried. Um, but like we, are there any interesting anomalies that would be worth investigating more deeply at this point? Or do you think we haven't discovered enough weird stuff yet? As far as exoplanets go. Or just anything, really. Like, yeah. Be it inside the solar the system, outside the solar system, anything. Things. Yeah, I don't know that there's anomalies that I can think of, you know, right off the top of my head that, that are, you know, th there are other things like Tabby Star. I don't think they're necessarily, a, I think it, it's, Probably not a Dyson sphere or something like that, just yeah. based on how the discussion is going. But but there's probably more to be understood with those. So in, in that sense, you know, yes, we, we should keep studying that. Um, no, I think we need to keep looking for anomalies. I think every, you know, that was an interesting one because it was an unexpected anomaly. Uh, often when you find these anomalies, they get explained after you put a little bit of effort into it. Um, but but you weren't expecting it. So, yeah. you know, an example is the very first discovery or, or one the first class of exoplanets that was discovered were hot Jupiters. Yeah. They were large, you know, massive super Jupiter planets very, very close in to the star, almost like a binary star. Um, these were not really predicted by, by the planet formation astronomers at the time, um, but they were really easy to see because it was just it had a huge gravitational tug on the star, the planet did. And so th these were found everywhere. And so then there was a, you know, a bunch of astronomers studying hot Jupiter. So that was anomalous. And then it was resolved relatively quickly afterward. So I think there's things like that. We just need to keep looking for anomalies to, to see what, what might be out there. Yeah, it, it, does, it does feel like trying to examine places is premature right now. Like now is the time for the Vera Rubin observatories, the Gaia missions, the the Nancy Grace Roman missions, the ones that are going to give us these giant surveys and start to at least make note of the anomalies. And then you can make those those follow up observations, you know, aerials, another example. And then you make and then you have, you know, I'm trying to think like I think about like, say, Cheops as a exoplanet characterization mission, it can't find planets, but it can study the ones that have already been found and give us more information. And it's all so new that we don't even know the weird stuff. We don't have a list of the weird stuff to look at yet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, I mean, we, we don't, there's a lot of unexplored territory within our own solar system. And I think you know, that there's, there's looking for interstellar objects. There's looking at planetary surfaces. There's looking at these gravitationally stable points between you know, within planetary orbits, these Lagrange points where, where debris can collect at, you know, in a stable gravitational configuration. Um, that's, that's very unexplored still. I don't know that there's any 
anomalies that we found. Um, there's one anomaly I can mention that, that has been published, but other than that, I think we just need more that needs to be uh, be searched, you know, surveyed. Yeah. The anomaly I'll mention, there's a paper by um, uh, Beatrice, uh, 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 I forget, I'm gonna mispronounce her name, Vill Villanova. Um, it, uh, she looks at, um, she has this project called the Vanishing Star um, Observing Project, and she looks at old photographic plates from the pre-satellite era hmm. and then compares them to observations of the same patch in the sky today. And so if there's any differences, if there's any, any points of light that you know existed back then versus now, you, you found something transient. So you found an object, whether it was a comet or, or something that was not a star yeah. um, or, or something that went supernova or whatever, the star vanished for whatever reason. And so she did publish this paper recently where there was you know, a series of anomalous um, you know, observations that appeared in this old photographic plate does not occur in modern observations. And she's ruled out all the other conventional explanations that she used to explain the other things that she's found. So she ruled out things like comets. Um, you know, th there were no satellites in the air at, at that time. Um, so we don't know what it is, but yeah. that's an anomaly that's been published and it's quite interesting. And um, you know, whatever that would be, it would be within the solar system, you know, relatively close to Earth, not like the distance of, of, of you know, Jupiter or anything like that. Yeah, that's really um, so interesting. So there's things like that, you know, that just, we just need to keep looking for anomalies to see what, what might be out there and then try to piece some of this stuff together. That that historical, like the, the longer we can observe, and as long as that information is kept in good archives and, and is searchable, then you start to get access to that time period as well. So you can start to detect evolutions over time of of things changing, maybe something that wouldn't be obvious today. If you looked at it over the course of say 100 years, maybe something would be obvious. And that's really exciting too. But I do like that idea of scanning the skies before there were satellites to search for satellites. Yeah, yeah. And Starlink's going to make that even harder now. Yeah, but yeah. Um, yeah. What so what is your instinct for the Fermi paradox? What do you think explains the Fermi paradox? Well, there's sort of two ways that I, I go with this. One is, um, you know, I've published a couple papers, one called the sustainability solution to the Fermi paradox. And then another one with Brendan Mullen more recently, that's looking at, you know, very similar things. Um, you know, look at our, our growth rates, our, our, our population, but then also energy consumption. And, you know, this is not something that's sustainable for a long time scale. We talked about this a little bit earlier, um, but you could do something like farming in a sustainable way if you can control that growth. So the Fermi paradox is kind of predicated on this form of exponential growth. The way that the question often asked is the planet sends out spaceships to settle other planets and they send out two and you very quickly settle the whole um, galaxy. And so once you once you do that, you either have to immediately stop growing or else you exceed your carrying capacity and you collapse. And so that's that's one way I look at this is if exponential growth is something that happens, it's probably unsustainable. And so maybe one answer to the Fermi paradox is it did happen. There was massive galactic attempted and either they collapsed before they got there or they got there and then collapsed because they didn't figure out how to put the brakes on. Right. Uh, and so then maybe who's left is the slower growing civilizations that maybe they grow. Maybe you can go from one star system to another. Maybe not. Um, but but you grow within your carrying capacity. And so, yeah, I kind of think you whoever's around has to grow within your carrying capacity. It might be that you can only grow to the bounds of your stellar system and that interstellar travel is really hard. And, and it's just sort of a novelty for exploration. Maybe you can grow, you know, from to multiple star systems, but it'd be there might be a civilization in some cluster of the galaxy, and they haven't reached reached the whole thing. Right. Right. Now, the other answer that I like though is that we're ants, and we have no idea who's out there. You know, did I, I pass an ant hill? Do they know that I walk by? Do they know the yes. you know, kind of technology that's going by them? Yeah, I've been um, bit by an ant, so an ants are yeah. definitely aware that I'm here. <laughs> but do they know what kind of technology you're carrying? Do they know about your wristwatch? I don't think they care. <laughs> I don't think they care. They just they need to bite. So, yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I I think, like, I wonder about that that idea. And yeah, you know, I and I, I know what you mean. But it's almost like 
at a certain point, if we can't perceive them, then there is there is if they don't exist. That's right. And so the question is what we, we can never fully rule that out. All we can do is try to expand our minds to think more broadly about what could be observable. But if there's nothing observable, then we, we can't do a scientific search for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it a... could be that we just don't know how to look for it. We could be looking right at it. Yeah, we just don't know what we're looking for. There was a really interesting idea in the three body problem series. I don't know if you've if you've read them by. I'm familiar with it. Haven't yeah, read it excuse me. Well, the the gist is, and I don't want to spoil it, but but part of it is like humanity is detectable by our impact on on our on the environment of planet Earth through the cities and through the environment and through pollution and all these kinds of things, the changes that we've made, the shapes of the cities, etc. And what if life's impact on the universe itself, like the actual fabric and structure of the universe itself? What if the universe that we find ourselves in is not what the natural universe looked like, that in fact, we are the result of, of technologically advanced civilizations depleting the universe as a resource. And it's a very sort of fascinating idea that we think when we look out into the universe that we see stars and planets, and galaxies and stuff, that that is what naturally formed in the same way that we look around the earth. And we see rocks and oceans and forests, etc. And we think that is the natural environment. But when you hop into a city, you see a different environment. And what if the universe that we find ourselves in today is the equivalent of a city? That we just yeah, can't. the whole thing is engineered. Absolutely. Yeah, we can't perceive it. We just can't perceive that what it that what it is and what the impact is and what and what and what pristine universe would look like because we're already, you know, things have already been have been the good stuff has already been taken out of the universe. And it's a it's a really interesting idea. Um, uh, so what's the best place to, for people to follow your research? Best place to follow my research. I mean, you can follow me on Twitter. I don't post about politics. I actually don't like Twitter for that reason. So all I do is post about my research. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you can, I have a webpage, huckmisra.net. Um, you can follow Blue Marble Space. If you go to bmsis.org, um, you can, I think if you click on about or maybe on the left panel, you can join our mailing list and you'll get updates, you know, for my work and then my colleagues, um, all the kinds of stuff we do. We send a newsletter uh, once a month. Fantastic. Well, Jacob, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and uh, good luck. If you do find that technical signature, please let me know. You'll be the first one I call. All right. Awesome. All right. Take care. Thanks a lot.